You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast, where we will be taking a data-driven look at the 2019 general election and possibly beyond. Each episode will feature a panel of distinguished guests looking back at the past week of the campaign and asking who's up, who's down, and what should we be looking out for in the next week. We will also be delving into the data, looking at some Ipsos Mori polling, and asking our experts to explain what's behind the trends we see. Hopefully, we'll have some fun along the way too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe, an award-winning think tank working on Brexit. Anand, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So, there's, God, there's loads we could cover, of course, in the sort of 20 minutes or so that we're together. But I suppose um, if this isn't too much of a big question, it'd be good to get your take before we talk about the election mm-hmm. as to some of the key themes that you've learned from the work you've been doing on Brexit and just generally our political environment. Well, I'm really lucky in the job I do because I basically run a team of some of the best social scientists in the country. So I just basically go around portraying what they know as my knowledge. Uh, And it's great. You know, I mean, your audience will know John Curtis, but there's a whole host of people who work on the law, on the economy, who do stuff for us. So I mean, my learning curve has been incredibly steep, vertiginously steep, I'd say. Uh, But I think like many people, for me, looking back on the last three years, what is fascinating about what we're going through is just how much I've learned about our country. Uh, Stuff that, you know, we should have known before about, you know, how angry some people were, how divided the country feels, how the concerns in different parts of the country are different to what we might think they are here in London. We should have been aware of all that before, but I think this has brought it home. And you see that. You know, you saw that in the 27 manifestos, you see it now that actually the whole nature of our political debate has changed because the referendum proved to be such a wake up call. And when you see people on social media or in the studios talking, they often talk about getting out of London, getting out of the M25 and London being a bubble. But I do wonder how much that's really been internalised in policy terms. It seems like we've got a long way to go. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, politics has changed a lot in the last decade. I think MPs spend a lot more time in their constituencies than they used to, for instance, and that's that's got to be for the good. But yeah, I still think very much that debates about policy are, are very London-focused. But it is good to see that, you know, a number of think tanks, you know, take IPPR as the obvious example, are opening non-London uh, offices as well to try and counter that. And it's good to see the broadcaster doing the same thing. Um, I, I was watching a, an excellent TED talk you gave, uh, I think it's back in the summer um, mm-hmm. this morning, just looking at, thinking about the podcast. And uh, was it Nora? I, I can't remember if she was from Newcastle. or There was alliteration in there somewhere. Nora yeah. was made up in the sense that the name uh, <laughs> was made up. She was real, but I'd never got her name. But I thought it was a really interesting anecdote. So it, I, I don't know how many listeners will have necessarily heard it. So I wondered if you could just sort of recap. Uh, this was about buses and the, 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 the sort of living embodiment of the difference between London policy and maybe what people are thinking about in the regions. Yeah, this is the point where everyone in my office is going to turn this podcast off because they've heard this story (laughs) so many times. It's had a collective eye roll going on in the office. But uh, yeah, this was a woman, uh, a thing I did in Newcastle where I was asked about what the economic impact of Lima would be. And I said, it'll probably make GDP smaller. And she stood up and shouted, that's your bloody GDP, not mine. (laughs) Uh, Which encapsulated, you know, quite a lot of the, the subsequent debate for me in a way. But yeah, in the TED Talk, it was just about, you know, what we need to do to fix Britain. And there were lots, I mean, you know, 
one of the things you were just talking about the London-centric nature of political debate. In London, we talk a lot about high-speed trains. Uh, in the rest of the country, people don't tend to take trains; they tend to take buses. And we speak a lot less about buses. Uh, I've always been struck by how little Parliament talks about petrol prices, actually, given the huge number of people that drive to work. Mm, mm, mm. So, if we fast forward a little bit um, to this election campaign, I mean. We'll get more specific, but I mean, what have you made of it? It feels to me like it's gone a bit flat. And I don't know whether that's inevitable with election campaigns after the manifestos are out, but we're sort of waiting for next week now. But what have you made of it all? I can't quite decide with this election, and I think you're right, that's how it feels to me, but I can't quite decide whether that's because I'm knackered or whether <laughs> it's because it's genuinely flat. But there isn't that scent, that buzz about it. And actually, Talking to people and talking to could MPs be who be, year, could be, well. yeah, it might be that as well. I mean, I'm always a bit sort of hacked off when it gets dark and cold. But I mean, talking to MPs who've been knocking on doors, what you hear back is this very profound sense that people recognise that this is an important election, but they're less than chuffed with the with the choice they're being presented with, which I think leads to a slightly curious mood. I mean, that's certainly true when we look at the polling. I mean, the satisfaction ratings we we, we sort of bore people to death almost of this, but Jeremy Corbyn at times has had the worst leader of the opposition satisfaction ratings ever. And uh, Boris Johnson for an incoming prime minister is not particularly popular, although his ratings are better than Jeremy Corbyn. So, and then meanwhile, our, our campaign tracker, which is a, a weekly survey we do over the weekend, um, each week of the campaign, shows that the Lib Dems have had a pretty poor campaign. You know, Joe Swinson's favorability ratings and the Lib Dems' favorability ratings falling off a cliff uh, in the last couple of weeks. So. I mean, at the same time, 64% tell us the election is very important to them, which is the highest on record. So you've got this disconnect between yeah. dissatisfaction Absolutely. with the choice, yeah. but certainly a sense that this is an important election. I mean, do we think that, is this the Brexit election? Obviously, a lot of your work is Bre obviously Brexit related. I mean, is it just a case that we already knew what the party stood for on Brexit and therefore not really a lot to say in the last couple of weeks? I mean... Obviously, we'll only know that when we get the data afterwards, because a lot of people thought 2017 was a Brexit election mm. until you look at the fact that, you know, social class was still the primary driver of how people voted. But the one thing I do think is the case is that people, while they might not have made up their minds who they're voting for and the, and the electorate might be volatile, they're volatile within the Brexit tribes. That is to say, there's precious little evidence of leavers deciding to vote for a Remain party or vice versa, but they might be making up their minds between those uh, parties within their own Brexit tribe. So in that sense, it feels a little bit like uh, a Brexit election, yes. I mean, I suppose if you look at the, that's very clear on the um, on the Labour Liberal Democrat side. We yeah. don't want to ascribe it all to Remainers, but there's definitely a sense of uh, Labour squeezing that Lib Dem vote. And of course, how much they can do so by next Thursday is probably going to be one of the defining factors in who wins. So the flip side of that, I suppose, it, we did a conference with the British Election Study uh, yesterday, and one of the most interesting, out of a number of interesting graphics, was just how poorly the Conservatives have fared at attracting Labour leavers. Mm. Uh, and Labour leavers are quite undecided about how to vote in this election. And I think, you know, if you're talking about the Red Wall and its fate, they're going to be quite important. We have to import these Americanisms, don't we? Yeah, I say yeah. this to someone with an American wife, so I'm allowed to... I don't know what's that. wrong with traditional Northern Labour seats, but, you know. The, the, yeah, the, the Red Wall, it was the, it was, it was the Blue Wall in America in 2016, yep. wasn't it? Um, anyway, it's a sort of extension of Black Friday, maybe. Um, don't even get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so... I, you talked a bit about Labour leavers there. I mean, what, what are the groups of people that you're... I mean, I guess we can't know for sure, but what are the groups of people that you think are, are influential in how this election is decided? Well, I think 
you know, it's these sort of sub-tribes, isn't it? It is Labour leavers. It is uh, people who are tempted by the Lib Dems but don't think they can win in a certain constituency. I think the, the Remain side is very, very interesting uh, in terms of where people end up going and whether Labour can convince enough Lib Dems that actually if you want to stop a Johnson Brexit, you have to vote for the Labour Party. I mean, I tend to, I'm quite parochial about elections. I mean, I'm not an election specialist in any way, shape or form. So I tend to, you know, firstly look at my hometown which mm -hmm. is Wakefield, which happens to be very interesting. I think it's second on the uh, list of targets from the MRP poll for the Tories now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I watch that with interest. And there are other places, that, you know, places like Lee, Barrow in Furness. My God, what's going on there? Uh, which all of us. Do you have a sense of Wakefield? I mean, you can't know how how it's going to turn out necessarily, but is there a vibe of? Well, yeah, I have a sense, but I wouldn't trust my sense because I was pretty mm. convinced it would go Tory in twenty seventeen. So I would just take my sense and bet against <laughs> it, quite frankly. <laughs> Let's talk about the substance of Brexit, because, I mean, if this is a Brexit election, and regardless of whether it is in a way, obviously things have to move, <laughs> famous last words, have to move one way or another, you would think. I mean, if Labour end up in office, then there's going to be another referendum. And if, if the Tories uh, can command a majority, then Johnson gets his withdrawal agreement through. And I suppose there's different shades of what that looks like in practice. But let's start on the, let's say, let's say Johnson gets his majority. I mean, where do we go on the Brexit, uh, on the Bre debate or process from there? I think you're absolutely right with Johnson. I'd question what you said about if Labour uh, form a government. But let's start let's come with, to Labour in a moment. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we'll start, start with Johnson. And yeah, I think it's absolutely true. I think if, if the Tories get a majority of one, we leave in January. Because I just, I just don't see a single Conservative MP voting against this between now and the end of January. Uh, thereafter, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting in several ways. One, whether we can get our act together enough to decide what we want for a trade deal to give an ask to the European Union. And two, whether they're willing to give what we're asking for. I think even what we call bare bones, the EU might say, well, you know, tariff-free access is all well and good, but you're big, you're close, you're a competitor, we want you to sign up to some rules too. So I don't think that trade deal is going to be anywhere near as easy as some Tories are claiming uh, that it will be. I think the other interesting thing is if, let's imagine the Tory electoral strategy is very successful and that you end up with Tory MPs for Wolverhampton or, you know, places in the West Midlands or Wakefield or wherever. Will those MPs, men, you know, and, and one of the things about those seats is they have higher than average proportions of people employed in manufacturing industry. Do those MPs immediately start to think about re-election and start thinking, oh, actually, you know, under the terms of Mr. Johnson's Brexit deal, quite a lot of people in my constituency might be losing their jobs. So does does it make it harder to devise an economic policy if you create a majority that is essentially based on a values coalition rather than a class coalition? Mm. I mean, I think I'm right in saying the trade deal is supposed to be done by this time next year. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's impossible, isn't it? Well, uh, it's not impossible. It's unlikely. Uh, and of course, the government has made two pledges. One, the trade deal will be done by next year. Two, whatever happens, they won't extend transition. And that will be the first key Brexit moment next year. By the end of June, the government has to tell the European Union it wants to extend transition. And we can extend it by one or two years. It's there in black and white in the Tory manifesto that they won't. Uh, so that will be the first pinch point. Now, obviously, people sometimes say things and do something completely differently. So it's not beyond the of possibility <laughs> that our prime minister reevaluates. But of course, then we might end up with this sort of wonderful Groundhog Day scenario where, you know, the ERG are saying, hang on a sec, the pledge you gave was that transition, you know, vassalage, as Jacob Rees-Mogg calls transition, has to end. I suppose the big unknown in public opinion terms is, I mean, Boris Johnson has talked about getting Brexit done. And it's yeah. a very effective campaign yeah. line, I think. I mean, simplicity is key. I think we've seen that 
in the UK and US in the past few years in terms of clarity of message. I mean, I wonder to what extent the public are going to think it is done, though. I mean, I suppose there's two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, yes, there's going to be discussions about trade deals, but maybe that just goes into the background and people mm -hmm. get on with their lives and they just think Brexit's done. I mean, do you get a sense of from your researcher, is there, a, is there, are there proof points as to what the public want to see to think it's done? Or is it just enough for Boris Johnson to get that deal through Parliament and say it's done? My sense is that actually it is just leaving the European Union will be quite important in terms mm. of public opinion. You know, we we organise a you know a flag taking down ceremony. We, you know, uh, it's all over the telly, and there are lots of sort of dramatic announcements by the government. I think if if the government is half competent, it will stage manage the end of January well to make the point that we've left, and immediately have a raft of high profile domestic policy announcements to come up with in February to make the point. Not only have we delivered like we said we would, but we have also moved on like we said we would, and now we can talk about something other than I mean, it's interesting if you talk about, if you look at focus groups of any group of voters that we've been doing in the last year or so, that part of the real frustration is, yes, if it's about Brexit, it's about the NHS, it's about policy, but it's about the logjam. Yeah. So I suppose, I mean, what you might get is a honeymoon period. And it, again, we'll come on to Labour in a minute. But assuming if the Conservatives do get returned in a way that they can pass the withdrawal agreement, you probably are going to get a bit of a honeymoon period, I suspect, in public opinion terms, because people will think, oh, finally, we're moving. And then maybe later they'll decide whether or not they like where we're moving to. Yeah. And in a sense, the Tories are under-promising in this election. You know, the IFS famously said that, you know, if if their pledges had been an annual budget, it would have been thin. Mm. Uh, so for a five-year <laughs> programme of government, it's extremely thin. But that, I suppose, if you're looking at the positive side, gives them the uh, opportunity to over-deliver. Over what about Labour then? So you, you sort of uh, you cast doubt on the idea that there'll be another referendum. So I suppose it's different. what we can't know is what shade of Labour government you might get. But I think it's let's assume the most likely form would be some sort of minority administration that has to be supported by the SNP, um, probably at least the SNP, uh, maybe the Lib Dems as well. But we leave the details of that to one side. I mean, what's your sense of where Brexit goes if Corbyn's prime minister well, by Christmas? I think the Labour offer is problematic because I think renegotiating in three months would be tight and having a referendum in six would be even tighter. So there's a practical issue with the Labour manifesto. But also I just think under those circumstances, getting the legislation for a referendum through will be far from straightforward. I just have a hunch that if we end up in that territory, we will have a general election before we have a referendum. Because actually that cobbled together coalition, maybe SNP, Lib Dems and Labour, uh, a number of Labour MPs have already said that they have no intention of voting uh, to allow a Scottish referendum. Well, if that's the ask from the SNP, then it's very hard to see how that process moves forward. And of course, when it comes to legislating for a referendum, we not only have to pick a question which is going to be contentious. We then have to decide on a franchise, and some of those parties are going to be saying under-18s, mm -hmm. EU nationals, and so on and so forth. So I don't think it's obvious that you will, even if you have the numbers in theory, in practice you will be able to get that legislation through very easily. I mean, it's probably reasonable to think that if every single Conservative would vote for the withdrawal agreement, uh, as you said, if there's a yeah. Conservative government, I'm not sure every single Labour MP is going to fall square behind whatever Jeremy Corbyn says. No, and... You know, there will be divisions over the franchise, over the question. Uh, you know, Lisa Nandy famously in the last parliament was arguing that it would be wrong to have a referendum with no deal not on the ballot. Don't see any prospect of a Labour government. I mean, the Labour government have said quite clearly in their manifesto that mm. it will be a choice between their deal and Remain. I want to look ahead to the next, the, the, with our final question to the uh, the last week or so. But let's talk briefly about Europe. What does Europe make of Brexit? I, mean, I know it's it's quite hard to say a, a unified European view, of course. But 
I mean, do they just want it done as well? I mean, do they have some of is, is the get Brexit done having some appeal in Brussels? Yeah, I think it is. But you're quite right. You know, there is no European view. I don't think the Croatians wake up in the morning and think about Brexit. I suspect the Irish do. Yeah, sure. uh, so it, it varies tremendously by member state. Uh, I think there's a sense of fatigue. I think, you know, quietly in Brussels, some people are thinking it'd be quite nice to extend transition because we're about to have these incredibly poisonous rows over the EU budget. And if the UK is contributing for two more years, that loosens the purse strings at a very, very important time for us. So I don't think it's necessarily a case of, of, of let's just shove them out the door. But I do think more and more... Uh, Member states are starting to think we just need to have some sort of closure on this now. And I, and I detect a slight ambivalence about the prospect of a Corbyn government and a referendum, not least because, you know, the Britain that if, if, you, assume, if you assume we have a referendum and if you assume that we vote to remain in that referendum, both of which are quite big assumptions, it's not clear we're going to be the most helpful or collaborative member state thereafter. Yeah, it's not clear the issue goes away either. You can't imagine the Conservative Party. No, no, I don't saying, think the issue does go away in those circumstances. Oh, okay, we're, we're remaining now. Yeah, we? fine. Fair uh, enough. That, the people that, have spoken. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> I can't quite see that. So, final couple of questions then. So, I mean, for one, is, is there anything you're looking out for in the final week of the campaign as we sort of approach polling day next week? Uh, and then two, I mean, what's your sense of where we go uh, politically as a country after the election? I mean, obviously that depends a lot on who wins. But I mean, you, you spoke in your TED talk. At the, we mentioned your TED talk at the beginning that about devolution and, and, and sort of appealing more to the the motivating factors behind the Brexit vote. I mean, I'd be interested to get some closing thoughts on that too. Well, actually, I mean, my answer to the first question is going to be a really rubbish one in the sense <laughs> that uh, I, I sort of hope this is a quiet week for me because you know I'm not a sophologist. Uh, all the action starts for me, I suppose, as soon as we get the result and people start saying, what does this mean for Brexit? So I expect to be very, very busy on the Friday, uh, but actually not so much beforehand. I mean, you know, John Curtis will be doing his tour of the studios manically for the next week. But actually, so so for me, I just sort of watch it as a citizen in, in, sure. in some ways. Uh, I mean... The state of politics afterwards, well, you know, that famous Overton window has widened ridiculously, hasn't it, since 20, since the referendum of 2016. My hope about our politics is that, you know, we get some governing done. I mean, the most sort of shocking thing about this country is that we just haven't been governed since 2016 to all intents and purposes because Brexit has sucked the life out of everything else. And actually a government that starts to think, you know, we'll have to wait and see if 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 our politicians are going to be true to their word. I mean, I thought back in July 2016 when Theresa May made that speech on the steps of Downing Street, it was a pretty good summation of some of the frustrations that led to the Brexit vote. But of course, she did absolutely nothing about any of them. For the next two, three years. Uh, so what I'd like to see now is some delivery. And if, if the parties are willing to deliver on some of the things we've said, then I'm actually relatively optimistic. It's often uh, 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 it's commonly said that this is the most consequential election for a decade or something like that. And this is the most important election in a generation. It does feel like this one is a crossroads, doesn't it, for the country? Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, I like it. Uh, you know, for those people who were fed up of the sort of managerial competence-based competitions that we got used to after 1997, where sort of the ideology seemed to have gone and, oh, they're all the bloody same was the common refrain, this is real visceral ideological politics. Because what's at stake is our vision of what our country is like, what the role of the state is, what the government is for, how much it should intervene in day-to-day -day life, how much it should can play a role in controlling the economy. These are big things we're debating now. And I think, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say that there's a real genuine battle of ideologies going on. Personally, I find that really fascinating. 
no pressure voters over to you <laughs> in the next week or so. Alan Menon, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Ipsos Mori Elections Podcast with me, Kieran Pedley. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe on iTunes or one of the other podcast apps that you might use, or tell a friend about us on social media or elsewhere. And keep an eye out for more Ipsos Mori Elections Podcasts in the coming days and weeks. Mm-hmm.